Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 60, There and Back Again. Last time, on July 1st, 1939, the Japanese forces began their march to their jumping-off points that would see the beginning of battle and the end of all Soviet-Mongol forces east and west of the Halha River. During the early hours of July 1st, both groups of Japanese forces, Komatsubaro's 23rd Division and Yasuoka's Detachment of Infantry and Armor, converged on the Fui Heights, just east of the Halha River, 10 miles north of the Soviet bridge. And though many miles had been covered, between the darkness and the Japanese air raid of a few days ago, there were no Soviet air patrols to spot these advancing forces. Actually, the Fui Heights were relatively flat on top, allowing many of the Japanese troops to gather there and see their next respective destinations. But what the Japanese did not know, because they were keeping their aircraft back, lest they give away their advance, was that there had been that very morning a Soviet presence on Fui, but for some reason, call it a gut feeling or what have you, they were pulled back just hours before the advance units of the 23rd Division showed up. So, before the first day of July was over, the Japanese had gained control of the heights, but then were ordered to rest for the next 30 hours. After all, they had been walking for hours in the hot sun with 80-pound packs on their back. But when the sun went down on July 2nd, it was time to move out. Peeling off a battalion from the 71st Infantry Regiment, Komatsubara had that unit, under the cover of another moonless night, cross the Halha in small boats and establish themselves without meeting any resistance. Most of the time, the boats would have been optional here, but recent rains had swollen the river, probably contributing to the Russians' sense of relative safety. During that night, Komatsubara's engineers constructed a pontoon bridge, just finishing the task by 6.30 a.m. of July 3rd. To save time, the bridge was only seven or so feet wide, but that was enough for the infantry to start crossing once the signal was given. Because the narrowness of the bridge, only one truck at a time could cross, which slowed things down considerably, but again, Luck was with the Japanese, as their presence had still not been detected. Watching the flimsy bridge barely handle a truck, Komatsubara knew there was no way his tanks could cross, so they would be sent south with General Yasuoka. Still, the infantry of the 23rd Division had their artillery with them, yet it had to be broken down, carried over by horse, and reassembled on the other side of the river. But again, their luck held, as no Soviet planes flew over, and within hours, their 1837mm anti-tank guns, 1275mm mountain guns, 875mm field guns, and four 120mm howitzers were put back together, ready to move. In fact, the first inkling Zhukov had of a sizable Japanese presence in the area was when Yasuoka's tanks stumbled across the most northern part of the Soviet troops just east of the Haha, about halfway between the Soviet bridge and Fui Heights, 
This was still early in the morning of July 3rd, when Yasuoka spotted what he believed were retreating enemy forces south of him. Simply, the Soviets could not be allowed to get away, knowing that the 23rd Division had not gone far enough on the western side to cut off their retreat. So, without waiting for his infantry to catch up and participate, the general threw in his 70 tanks. Totally unaware of what was coming at them, because visibility was down to just 10 yards or so, the men of the Soviet 149th Infantry Regiment did not have the time needed to man all their artillery, and ended up fighting as best they could. But it would not be enough to stop Yasuoka's armor. After taking a few shots, the Russians retreated south in an unorganized manner. But they did have time to radio Zukov to say that they were under attack by Japanese tanks. Zukov knew this was the beginning of something, but not exactly what. He still did not know of the 23rd now on his side of the river to the north. And so, only knowing of the armor, he ordered the 11th Tank Brigade, the 7th Mechanized Brigade, the 24th Mechanized Infantry Regiment, and parts of the 6th Mongolian People's Republic Cavalry Division to assemble at Bain Sagan, a height on his side of the river, just across from where Yasuoka had started his attacks, some two and a half miles south of the Fui Heights. But what Zukov also didn't know was that the 23rd Division was already there on those heights, with their artillery assembled and back in formation. However, Komatsubara, who was personally leading this advance, didn't know of the approaching Soviets either. So both sides were surprised when the Japanese came down off the hill to continue on with their mission and ran right into the advancing Russian-Mongol forces. This was just before sunrise on July 3rd. As the Russian tanks of the 11th Tank Brigade were at the head of a column, they were engaged first. Yet, being tanks, they went on the offensive. But the Soviet armor didn't deploy in any kind of formation. There wasn't time. And the Japanese 37mm rapid-fire anti-tank guns, using armor-piercing shells, and still on the hill, shot into the way-too-straight line of Russian armor. Tank after tank was taken out. So, with Japanese tanks on the eastern side of the Haha and Japanese infantry on the west, Zhukov now knew something large was afoot. Still, one thing at a time. The Japanese forces on his side of the river had to be dealt with first. So, he sent in the rest of the 11th Tank Brigade, 7th Brigade, 24th Regiment, and an armored battalion of the 8th Mongolian Cavalry Division. He was hoping the additional 150 tanks and 154 armored cars with their 45mm guns could check the Japanese advance, and these numbers were respectable. But the Achilles heel of this stopping force was its limited infantry support. Having only some 1,200 men in the area, the Russians fed them in as they showed up. This allowed the Japanese artillery to focus on the Russian tanks and armored cars. Also, the lack of Soviet infantry allowed Japanese infantry to sneak up on the embattled Russian tanks and throw their bottles of gasoline on the tanks or inside once the hatch was forced. The oncoming defenders coming in piecemeal were taken out, almost just as they got into the fight, 
which meant they weren't taking any Japanese casualties with them. As for the Japanese infantry, this would all make for amazing stories of courage to be told around a campfire or back at home one day. But for now, the Russian sacrifice, not that it was supposed to be that, was halting the advance of Komatsubara's attack. His objective had been to head further south by some eight miles and capture their side of the main Russian bridge. As it was, their unfolding tactical victory had the beginnings of a strategic defeat. Wave after wave of Russian and Mongolian defenders were sent against the Japanese, who by now had called in air support. And each Soviet-Mongol wave was deflected. Those who survived retreated. Only later would Zhukov find out that his tanks were putting all their hopes on their main guns, underutilizing their machine guns which is what allowed the Japanese infantry to approach them and get in close enough to disable the metal beasts. Adjustments would be made in time, but not soon enough to make a difference here and now. The Russians kept coming that afternoon of July 3rd, and over the hours, their bigger guns started hanging back and shelling the Japanese aggressors, who were, over time, turned into defenders. They were now defending Bain Sagan, their bridgehead. As the shelling increased from the Russians, the Japanese found the loose sand on the west side of the river perfect for digging in and absorbing the falling shells. The Russians continued suffering heavy casualties, but Zhukov, looking at the larger picture, had achieved his tactical success of stopping the advance. And still, Zhukov kept sending in some of his more than 400 tanks, and as the day went by, was able to, somewhat, go on the offensive. There was no way the infantry of the 23rd could destroy all of those tanks of Zhukov. So now, focused on staying alive, keeping the Russians back, and waiting for nightfall. But it would be a long wait, because Komatsubara's men had been too busy that day to replenish their water supply, so by the afternoon of July 3rd, were exhausted and parched. As the western bank of the Haha was higher than the eastern bank, Komatsubara could, more or less, watch the progress of General Yasuoka and his two tank regiments. The 23rd Divisional Commander's best hope was for those tanks to push their way south cross the bridge, and then come north to then engage the oncoming Russian forces. And this seemed to be just what was going to happen. The Japanese tanks had come upon the defensive line of the Russians so quickly that some of the defensive units had their guns literally run over by the attacking tanks. But this was not the Chinese the attackers were facing. Soviet units ordered in by Zhukov kept coming at the tanks, in their mixed infantry, artillery, and tank formations. But the Type 89 tanks used by the Japanese were made for close infantry support, not for going head-to-head with enemy tanks and artillery. Soon, their thin armor gave way to Russian guns and tanks, who themselves were using armor-piercing shells. What had sustained Yasuoka's advance thus far had been simply momentum, and the Russians' inability to stop and engage the Japanese properly. 
Soon, Russian tanks found that their long-barreled, high-velocity 45mm cannons of their Soviet BT-5-7 tanks could take out their Japanese counterparts from 2,000 yards away. Through bloody trial and error, the Russians started holding back their tanks and guns and struck at the Japanese, whose short-barreled, low-velocity 57mm cannon simply could not reach them before being fired upon. As the Japanese passed through the first Russian defensive line, they soon came upon something they had never seen before. High-grade steel piano wire, bought from Japan, was strung along sections of the road the Japanese armor would have to travel in order to get to the Soviet bridge. Whether this was standard Soviet countermeasures or something Zhukov made up is not known. But as Yasuoka's tanks advanced, they soon found themselves running into these almost invisible traps at high speed. Their tanks would inexplicably grind to a halt as the strong steel cables became wrapped up in the bogey wheels and gears, and once immobile, were hit repeatedly and swiftly by Russian armor and artillery. Within minutes, 20 of Yasuoka's 70 tanks were smoldering wrecks, the men inside the same. As for the tank crews to the rear, who had a few seconds to realize what was going on and perhaps abandon their tanks, they did not. Army regulations required that tank personnel stay with their machines in order to maximize their chances of saving those machines. Resource-poor Japan could produce few tanks on their own, so each one was to be guarded by the very lives of the men inside. This was the same mentality that wouldn't even allow the word retreat to be written in any of their manuals or orders. And because of this samurai mentality, the men who had the knowing of the tanks, who could have been saved and used later, died along with their machines, now caught up. Now far behind the Japanese tanks, who had used their speed as their most effective weapon, was the infantry of the 64th Regiment. Once their own tanks had raced ahead, only to be shot up or stopped by piano wire, these men only saw Russian tanks, and so had to stop themselves to try to repel them. If that weren't bad enough, now that the men were immobile, they soon found themselves assaulted from Russian artillery. This required them to truly stop and dig in, lest they be obliterated from the skies. But falling shells weren't the only problem for the Japanese tanks and men. Russian aircraft, not seen in the area for a week, soon appeared over the skies of Haha and began strafing and bombing the would-be attackers. This combined and coordinated defense soon caused the invading tanks to advance in a different direction and make for their starting point. Of course, by the time they reached the Fui Heights, half of the tanks were gone. The infantry was still out there, now the leading force on the eastern side of the Haha, dug in deep, and like the men on the western side, waiting for nightfall. As the sun was going down on July 3rd, General Komatsubara met with his staff and Major Suji, the author of the operational planning of this attack, and decided, as they had two forces cut off by a river and a large enemy force in between the two, it was tactically prudent to bring all their forces together on the eastern side of the river, 
If not, it was easy to see the very real possibility of Komatsubara's 8,000 men being wiped out. But there was no more bridge-building material, which forced the need for Komatsubara's men to retrace their steps and recross the river to their starting point. It was only a matter of time before the Russians found their feeble but now priceless pontoon bridge and smash it. And the recrossing had to be completed that very night. Fortunately for the Japanese, Zhukov still didn't know exactly what he was dealing with, and so still focused on the defense. Though his men were exhausted and parched, Komatsubara gave out the orders for their advance in a different direction. Colonel Sumi's 26th Regiment, having seen the least amount of action that day, would position themselves at Bain de Sag, while the 71st and 72nd Regiments moved back north and recrossed the bridge to then make for the relative defensive position of the Fui Heights. It took the whole night of July 3rd-4th, but by dawn the two spent regiments were back on the east bank. But it would not be so easy for the 26th Regiment, who had provided their rear guard. As the sun rose on July 4th, the Soviets discovered that the bulk of Japanese troops were back on the east bank, but there were still some enemy troops at the height of Bained Sag on their side. They could not be allowed to escape, so Zhukov sent in wave after wave of infantry. The heights gave the Japanese decent protection, but each time they tried to make for the bridge, found themselves fighting like the devil just to keep the attackers at bay, who by now sensed victory. It took the whole day of July 4th, but slowly the men of the 26th Regiment made their way to the bridge and recrossed it. But they lost many men in doing so. During this fighting, Soviet artillery also focused on the pontoon bridge. Surely there had to be more than one out there, but this was the only one they could detect, and thus received the appropriate attention. Yet as the shells rained down around the bridge, not one managed to hit the crossing, which allowed the survivors of the 26 to make good their escape. But if Komatsubara and the men with him thought they were safe, they found out soon enough how wrong they were. While some of the Soviet artillery focused on the 26 and the pontoon bridge, Zhukov had his German-made 152mm Rheinmattel brought forward acquired from Germany before the Nazis came to power. It took aim at the Fui Heights. The German guns had a range of 20,000 yards, so were able to cause Komatsubara considerable discomfort. The guns he had at his disposal could not even fire half that distance. All they could do was dig deeper into the heights and hope to survive. Finally, the sun set on July 4th, which allowed the Japanese on the western side to recross the river, and somehow with their one bridge still intact waiting for them. As early morning came on July 5th, the last of the organized Japanese men of the 26th crossed the bridge, which was then blown by the 26th engineers. For the next few hours, other Japanese troops that had been wounded or had gotten separated from their units approached the shore only to find the bridge gone. The river was still swollen from the rains, 
but the men had no choice. Either one by one, or in small groups, they tried to cross. Very few made it back to Fui Heights. For all their trouble, Komatsubara had lost 10% of his infantry. Half of that number came from the 26th Regiment. As for Yasuoka, before his tanks made their way back north, having failed to reach the Soviet bridge, some 60% of them were now out of the fight. Some tanks would be gathered and repaired later, but that didn't help the Japanese at this point. Kwantung headquarters assessed the situation for the next few days and decided to remove what tanks were left. If there were going to be any future fighting near the Haha, their remaining tanks would not play a part. And as the Kwantung saw any failure as unforgivable, there would be future operations. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So just to let you know, the second membership episode of this month will come out on the 1st, on Sunday, when I get back from the beach. And just to make it up to you, I'll make it extra long, so it'll be like 45 minutes long. So again, I'm really sorry I crammed as much as I could in, but it will be out on the 1st, I promise, and um, I'll add a lot of material to it. So thank you for listening and for your patience, and I'll see you soon with the next episode.